Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. So I mentioned last time, and I'll mention it again now that, you know, I don't know why I didn't say this earlier. One of the things that happens when people see, oh, we're going to do a study on justice is that right, red flags go up for especially evangelical red flags, because what does that mean? Uh, Where are you going with this? And the answer is I'm not going anywhere with it in terms of I'm not advocating for any political, economic, social system of any nation in the world at all. I'm trying to say this is what a kingdom ethic looks like. This is what a kingdom economics look like. This is what a kingdom ethic looks like. This is what a kingdom society looks like. But the reality is no nation in the world is going to do this. They just simply can't. No nation can impose an ethic that says, you know what, I'm going to lay down my life for the enemies. Christ can do that. And that's what brings peace. But no nation's going to do that. And so no nation can ultimately even be a Christian nation in that sense. Um, and no nation can truly impose a Christian ethic. At the same time, the church is supposed to call for that for upon the nation. Say, hey, let's bring diplomacy. Let's bring peace and justice and those things. So I want to kind of drop hopefully the red flags or the, or the oh, where's he going to go with this and say, we're just simply going to say this is what Jesus says. This is what we do as a community. And we advocate for this for our nations. This is not capitalism. This is not socialism. This is not communism. It's none of the above. I mean, it's a kingdom ethic. Secondly, that we've talked about, and I kind of iterated this at the beginning as well, that the ethic of of God's kingdom is an ethic that says God's not going to impose this on the world. He's going to empower his people to actually put it into practice. So as we learn, what does this mean? What does this look like? Oh, Jesus was all about the kingdom that we discussed last fall. Oh, and whatever the kingdom of God is, we need to learn how what it is because that's what we're supposed to implement and what we're supposed to do. But the next part of that becomes, yeah, and that God actually does that work through us. So we looked at Exodus a while back and said, oh, the cry of the people of Israel, Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, and cries went up before God and God says, hey, Moses, that's chapter three. And this is the way it works. And last week we looked at this passage in Genesis 18, where God's about to like blow Sodom and Gomorrah to smithereens. He's like, you know, I think I should tell Abraham what I'm about to do. And we're like, why does he need to tell Abraham? Anybody want to, let's comment on that for a minute from last week's discussion. Why does God felt, feel like he needed to tell Abraham what he was about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because she had made a covenant with him and it was the honorable thing to do. Okay. So what is it about that covenant though? What is it about that covenant that says, I need to tell Abraham? Because Abraham's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Very good. Yeah. God is going to do his work through Abraham. And if I'm going to do my work through Abraham, I, I should let Abraham know. And if you want to have your Bibles open, you want to look at, at Genesis 18, we'll pick up here and then we're going to move forward. So Genesis 18 again. 17 through 19. Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? What am I about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Very good. So then verse 20, the, the outcry of Solomon and Gomorrah is indeed great. 
So I'm going to go down, but he's going to go down through the person of Abraham. Now, note verse 19, though, is that Abraham may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. And then the way of the Lord is defined as doing righteousness and justice, doing righteousness and justice. Now, does anybody remember what, what does righteousness and justice mean? What, because these are these two famous words in the scriptures often paired together in the old Testament, but what did they mean? Or just a summary, uh, just an idea. Well, I mean, what you said last week was they, they were, oh, they're, they're, they're bound. And what I remember was that righteousness were the set of laws or the, the behaviors or the mores of a particular community or people or whatever. And that being unjust mean, means that you weren't in conformity with those those laws or those rules or those mores and that becoming just would is a, is a function of a way for you to become in line with those laws that's kind of what okay remember does anybody want to add or i mean especially fleshing out exactly what what those laws and mores as scott has phrased it as what does righteousness mean go ahead jess um as as God had meant it to be. Yeah, okay, very good. All right, yeah. Okay, excellent. That's a good summary. The way that God had meant it to be. All right, very good. Anybody else want to add anything? So think of, of righteousness as the standard. Oh, standard. But, right, okay. that standard. It's, so it's that mores, that, but that standard of what it ought to be. And when that standard is not met, we have a state of unrighteousness. And so it's not. we're not talking about personal individual piety and doing the right thing that's not what this means here and when that standard is not met we now need justice to bring about that standard of righteousness so justice is what's needed to bring about righteousness when righteousness isn't there the goal is righteousness and righteousness is that standard that says everybody has at least what they need fair equity equitable equitability standardness a standard mm -hmm. And when that's not met, we need justice to bring it about. So there's a quote. It's the first thing on today's notes. Uh, so before the ABC. And it says, it's a quote from Bruce Walkie. He's one of the great biblical scholar, evangelical scholars of the, of the 20th, 21st century. He wrote, a, he wrote a commentary, two volume commentary on the book of Proverbs, like two volumes, huge. And here's what he says. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And there's your difference. The, the righteous one is the one who's willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are the ones who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And the great exemplar of all that, by the way, is Jesus. This is a, a wonderful definition of really of what the cross is. And yet, this is in his commentary in the book of Proverbs. So he's saying, when you read the book of Proverbs, read it this way. The righteous one is the one who's willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked is the one who's willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage himself, themselves. And if you, get it, if you don't listen to the podcast that we do regularly, I encourage you to do so. But it's next Tuesday's podcast. Is it next Tuesday's? Po yeah, I think it is. On... 
the first that's our first episode in the gospel of luke and what Vinny and i do in that episode is we really flush out this roman context of how the roman world was structured in this almost like a caste system this hierarchical system where you simply didn't do that you, you didn't advantage somebody below you because it does you no good and so we'll flush that out for like 20 minutes or more in, in the podcast and helping you understand that and then we have a scholar who's going to come on uh, probably early April, mid-April, who's going to discuss this, the Roman system even in more detail as we talk about the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Roman world. And so it's really going to flush this out a lot. And I encourage you to listen to that. But this is exactly what the gospels are talking about. And that is that we look after the one whom society doesn't look after, the disadvantaged one, even though it might disadvantage us because we want to advantage them and kind of bring them up to a level where everybody else is at. Any questions or thoughts or comments on that? Right, so let's flush this out a little bit more. And this is not going to be on your outline yet. So I'll let you know when we get to your outline. Let's look at a couple of verses here to start. And I'll, I'll put these in the, in the, in the email later on. Uh, I'll send them to you guys. So you have these references later on. But Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Uh, interesting. So my translation says, the, verse 9 says, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion you know, each to his brother. And then verse 10 is similar. Mm -hmm. So verse 10 is what often is referred to in scholarly world kind of as the, the quartet of the vulnerable. It's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. So the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. So yeah. what makes the widow a vulnerable? Some, all right, obviously, I think you might know, right? What makes the widow one of the members of the vulnerable? Well, she doesn't have any male. She's not part of a male structure. Yeah, yeah. The male is the one who provides, provides the well-being. It's going to be very hard for a woman to find work or jobs or whatever. And so think of the, the story of Ruth and Naomi when they come back to the land. If you know this, the biblical story of the, of the book of Ruth, Naomi goes off because of a famine and she leaves her, her, her and her husband and their two sons and they leave their ancestral land in Bethlehem. They leave their land because there's a famine that doesn't look good. So she owns land in Bethlehem, but they go off to Moab, which is modern day Jordan, and her two sons find wives. One of them is Ruth. And then her husband dies and the two sons die. And Naomi's like, okay, I'm without sons and I'm without a husband, which in the biblical world, that means she's dead. She's dead because she has no land because she's, she's in, in Jordan or in Moab and she has no male. So land and family, the two things that there. So she's as dead as dead. And she says, you women go back and find husbands for yourselves amongst your own people because you know, your own family will take you back in at least. I'm going to go home. And Ruth says, look, I'm bound to you, Naomi. So she goes back to the land. But here's the reality. Naomi has land and somebody might be using the land, but it's hers. But she can't farm it because it's just, mm. it's just her and Ruth. The land actually doesn't do her any good. And this is that story of, of redemption of a widow who has essentially nothing, even though she actually has land. Uh, the orphan, of course, is obviously one of the vulnerable because they have no, no, no parents, right? An orphan, by definition, we're talking about someone who's a child, young, too young to work themselves, but obviously without, without a parent. And there's no 
male or even mother in this instance as well, well usually an orphan could be one parent or the other or both, who's there to take care of their needs. And so they're, they're, they're without it. All right, what makes an immigrant a member of the vulnerable? Hey, Rob, can I ask a question on Please. Ruth? Yeah. Uh, I once had a lesson on the judges. And if you look at the judges, they weren't great by any means. No, they no. were all that he could gather. And if you look at Samson, he's violating all the Nazarite rules and he's yeah. taking it back to his parents and doing it. So the, the, the teacher did a great job expositing the realities in the Jewish world of how they'd be looked at. Hmm. But I've always found it fascinating that you have the story of Ruth immediately after the judges, which here's this woman who is not a Jew and is totally righteous. But is that coincidence or do you think that that was purposeful in terms of the placement of Ruth immediately after judges? Well, Ruth's placement is before the David story. That's I think that's the key. So I'd have to think a little bit more to see what the relationship between Ruth and judges is. I know the last verse of judges so it's Judges, first, Judges chapter 21. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So Judges verse, chapter 21, verse 25. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You are right, Anthony, because look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in those days, when the judges governed. So there's a connection between these two. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then that the book of Ruth is going to contrast that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, end of book of Judges. And Ruth 1.1 refers back to Judges. But mm-hmm. certainly Ruth's placement is also the fact that, well, she's the grandmother or, or great-grandmother of David. Uh, so the immigrant, of course, is a member of the, of the vulnerable because of what reason? They're a foreigner. They're a foreigner. And foreigners have no... No, no they don't own anything. No land. <laughs> they have no land. So land and family are the two keys to understanding the Old Testament story. We'll, we'll do this certainly many times in the book of Genesis. You need land to either raise crops or have a herd, right? Sheep, goats, whatever it might be. You need land for that. And you need family to work that land, whether it's the shepherds or whether it's the crops. And if you read Psalm 37 you'll note that eternal life in an Old Testament world sense, right? They didn't have this great concept of the eternal life and of living on and resurrection life. They didn't have that concept yet. So eternal life was considered to have, I have land and I have children and grandchildren. I can die now. My name will go on forever. It was actually lived out in my descendants. So if you lose one of them, a widow who loses the man to provide for the land, or you lose the land because of poverty or whatever might happen, you become member, a member of the vulnerable. Now, remember, in Israel, the land cannot be sold. It can't be sold. So if you become so poor that you can't pay your taxes or whatever it might be, or there's a famine and you need... So it would be given or, or bought by a family member, someone within the clan, so someone within your own family. If not within your own family, then within your own clan. If not within your own clan, then within your own tribe always within the tribe it cannot be sold or to a member of another tribe because then that other tribe becomes bigger and more prosperous than it becomes rivalry and then every seven years that land's given back so you can never buy or sell it permanently it has to always be given back and this is the reason why was because there shall be no poor among you so the key verse will be deuteronomy 15 verse 4 that we'll get back to at the end of the end of the night deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says there shall be no poor among you and that's this poor in the sense of 
they're vulnerable. They have no land or no family or both. So the immigrant comes in for whatever reason they are, right? Living war, living famines, whatever it might be. And they have no land. And so now there's these laws of how to care for the immigrant because, hey, look, we're going to have to give them whatever provisions they need. And that's the laws of gleaning, if you know the stories of uh, where an Israelite was actually, they were not allowed to, you know, if you're pulling the, the oxen, you don't go, you know, how, you know how you're like vacuuming a carpet and you go to the corner and then you pull the vacuum back and then you, well, you can't do that with oxen. You can't pull them into the, into the corner. So you have to make a turn at that when you get near the corner. And because you make a turn, you get those corners are unharvested. Uh, well, you leave them. You don't go back and harvest them later on. When you're, when you're harvesting and, and anything falls out of the basket or whatever, you leave that because the poor and the vulnerable then get to go into your fields and they get to glean. They get to take whatever's there. And, and of course, Ruth does that. And that's the story, the story of the God, in the book of Ruth also there. And then the poor are, are the fourth category. And the poor could just be anyone who just fell into this category of the poor, whether it's because the famine and they couldn't, like Ruth and her family, or Naomi and her family are the poor, uh, or taxation. This is certainly the instance in the New Testament now when you have heavy taxation by the Romans and you also have the Jews with temple taxes. And so they're doubly taxed. And then they're also now falling indebted because they, because of a famine, they, they had to uh, take out a loan from a Roman or somebody above them. And remember, Israelites could never charge interest on loans, but the Romans didn't follow that, that rule. So they charge you uh, interest and that interest, you can't even afford to pay the interest, let alone have. And every year you keep selling more and more and more of your land and fall more and more and more and more into poverty. And so that becomes this classification of the poor. So that's the quartet of the vulnerable. Does that make sense, everyone? And that's especially then who the laws of the Old Testament were, we're going to target. We're going to look at some verses here in, the, in Isaiah and elsewhere in just a few minutes. So are we ready to move on? So Psalm 99, Psalm 99. And somebody wants to read the, fir the first four verses of Psalm 99, Psalm 99, one through four. I, I got it. Thank you. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He's exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity in Jacob. Um, you have established equity in Jacob. You have done what is just and right. There you go. Oh, and my translation says justice and righteousness there in verse four. So okay. What 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 uh what version what version? Do so you I'm use? showing the New American Standard. That's kind of the, my go-to one. It's just okay. the study Bible I the Bible I started using in the early 1990s, and I right. do all my meditating from it. And so it's like I just know that one. So Ezekiel 18 verses five through nine. Ezekiel 18 verses five through nine. So Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. So. Ezekiel is kind of, kind of one of those big books in the middle. Suppose a man is righteous. He practices what is just and right, does not eat pagan sacrifices on the mountains or pray to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not have sexual relations with a woman during her period, does not oppress anyone, but gives the debtor back whatever was given in pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and clothes the naked okay does not engage in usury or charge interest but refrains from wrongdoing promotes true justice between men and follows my statutes and observes my regulations by carrying them out 
That man is righteous. He will certainly live, declares the sovereign Lord. So again, see how the point of these verses is to show you that what righteousness means and what it looks like. And it's this very practical Mm -hmm. sense. We so often define righteousness as the spirituality. He's a righteous person because he prays all the time. He's Mm -hmm. a righteous or, or she is because they go to church all the time and they read their Bible all the time and they go to Bible studies all the time. And yet we're looking at this as, as like, he doesn't lend money out on interest. He restores the pledge to, a, to the debtor. He doesn't commit robbery. Now, what sort of people in the Old Testament context, and you may or may not know this answer, what sort of people were more often prone to doing these things that uh, the opposite of, of what righteous man does? I was, they did loan with interest. They did rob. They did steal. They didn't commit adultery. What sort of people, typically speaking, are the ones who did do these things? I would say the people in power. Yeah, that's. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a general. That's a generality, of course. But, yeah. It is, but the reason why this is so significant is because the point of it all was the wealthy and powerful are getting away with it because they have wealth and power, and they can get away with it because often they, well, David got away with it. You can say, well, he lost his son, but he didn't go to jail for murder. And that's yeah. what he did. He, yeah. he, he yeah. killed Uriah. He had Uriah yeah. killed. Yeah. But seriously, un- unjustly. You said some things never change. Yeah. It's, there's a constant refrain about not taking a bribe. What is one of the serious injustices about taking bribes or bribing somebody else? Very much honesty in, in general, isn't it? Yes, that's yes, it is, right? I think the bribe, the, the the bribe typically involves something that is, I'll call it illegal for lack of a better word, but it's something against the rules. Typically. Right. It grossly disadvantages somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who? The poor. The Fresh poor who can't afford poor, to bribe. Yeah. <laughs> A briber, a system built on bribes is a system of injustice to the poor who can't afford it. The wealthy who can afford the bribes, they get away with it. This is significant in the book of Acts, of course. Paul spends two years in jail in Caesarea because he came into Jerusalem with money. So if you read 1 Corinthians and Romans, Paul is going around the what we call the GNC area, Greece and, and the west coast of Turkey, and he's taking an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So when he arrives in Jerusalem, He's got a boatload of money, like literally a boatload of money that he gives to the church in Jerusalem. Well, that gets to Rome, uh, to the Romans. Mm. They know, hey, you got, you have access to money. So when Paul does get arrested in chapter 20, he sits in jail for two years because they want a bribe. We know you have money. And Paul's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Oh, oh, interesting. And that's the context there. Uh, some of you might remember Roberta Heston as she was, and she preached a few times at Cornerstone up in Northern California when she was there. And she was the president of the seminary that we had started there for a while. Right. And at one point, she was the president of World Vision, I think international. I think she was the World Vision has two presidents, one for the president for USA and one that's the president of the international. I think she was the international arm. And I remember her saying to me that World Vision will never do work in Nigeria. And she said, because Nigeria works on bribes and we won't ever do bribes. So the poor children in Nigeria never get the advantage of, of world vision because they work on bribes. When she said that, I'm like, oh, you know what? I remember when, when I traveled to Nigeria, Jared and I went to Nigeria. Some of you might remember what, 2009. And we're standing in the queue for passport control. And we're about 
15, 20 people deep. You know, we got our luggage and we're about 15. And all of a sudden somebody walks up to me and takes me out of the line. And we walked right through the passport control box and boom, we were done. I'm like, and after Roberta told me the story later, you know, a few years later, I'm like, oh, they paid a bribe to get me through passport control because it was like not respectful for the, for the white man to have to sit through passport control while everybody else was oh. I'm like, oh my, this, the whole, and they didn't think anything of it. I have a question. What, I mean, in the case of Nigeria, where the woman was trying to be there to help the, the kids and all that, wouldn't what she was doing outweigh the fact that she would have to bribe herself into that environment in order to do God's work? Are you referring to something specific? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Scott. Well, you were just talking about somebody going to Nigeria. Somebody was wouldn't go to Nigeria. Talking about World Vision wouldn't work there. World Vision would yeah. do no business there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm what I'm saying is is would it be conceivable that they would pay the bribe in order to do God's work, and wouldn't doing God's work outweigh the the negative part of the bribe? I don't know. Because they'd have to pay a bribe in every other country now. Oh, once you pay a bribe to Nigeria, you got a bribe oh, to Ghana, you got to so bribe every, uh, everybody else. So it's so it just perpetuates. It's just, Rob, it's can, just I, can, I, can I throw an anecdote in here too? Yeah, please. The Daily Bread today was fascinating. Talked about a woman in India who ran an orphanage for many years and she never accepted outside money. She mm. raising in the whole bit, but a corporation, mm. a large corporation, came in and wanted to make a sizable donation. So mm. she accepted. And what they said, supposedly no strings attached, but a year later, they demanded to place people on the governing board and they were not a faith-based corporation. And she gave every last penny back because she was concerned with people coming in trying to run a modality that had nothing to do with the gospel message. So mm. it, it, mm. Yeah, you can see where this can go eventually. So, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, yeah. In our place, sir, yeah. especially government employees and the political leaders, Without bribing money, they never do any work for yeah. people. Police, when comes for passport verification, verification, if everything is good also, we have to give some money for them. Somebody else was going to say something? I was just going to share, it wasn't monetary, but it was a feeling. I remember when I was a student in my final year at university and I had a project and one of the lecturers was doing his job in, in, in placing me in something that he knew that I would like to be. And when once I got that position, he said to me, I did that for you, now you owe me. Oh. And it was ugh, oh. such a horrible feeling. I was like, I ran, I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> it's like, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. It was really slimy as a result of that. Oh, know? yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of industries, even in the United States, that are like that too. That's like, yeah, I don't want my... Like I didn't want my kids to go into Hollywood because it, it worked a lot, a lot Nasty. like that. Nasty. Uh, quid pro quo. Is yeah. 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 Is. I mean, they, yeah, well, we, as in, in our company, as, as a manager, we all go through training every year on harassment and quid yeah. pro quo is, is a component of that tit yeah. for tat. Yeah. All right, let's go to one more verse here that it's not on your outline yet. So Psalm 146. Did we just do that one? No, we didn't. Psalm 146 verses 5 through 9 again. So same, ver same verse numbers, but Psalm 146. The last five Psalms, 146 to 150, are called the Hallel Psalm, the praise Psalms. They all the, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's just all over these last five Psalms. So this mm -hmm. is kind of the close of the book of Psalms. 
So you can see Psalm 146, verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. I'll praise the Lord while I live. So this is the context of this psalm. So if somebody wants to read verses 5 through 9. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrate the ways, frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and finish. Yeah, why not? Why not? The regular tenor of the scriptures, I kind of want to give you a little bit of an idea of the breadth of scripture. This is just what God acts and what God expects. Any thoughts, any comments, any questions? So let's go to your notes now. So Psalm, uh, the first line in your notes is Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. And this is kind of, Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy 4 is the introduction to the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, somebody want to read? See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you are to do these things in the land where you are entering to take possession of, possession of it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? Election is missiological and not merely soteriological. Soteriology, the last word in that sentence, means the doctrine of salvation. So soteriology means the, the, the doctrine of salvation. Election means God's choice. God chose you and chose us to be his children. And the point of it is, when he chose us, he chose us for the purpose of mission, missiological means to be missional, means to make him known and not merely to be saved. So if I were to restate that sentence again, I'd say God chose us for, so that we can make him known and not simply so that we might be saved. That's how I would say that. That makes sense. Want me to repeat that again? God chose us not so that we may make him known, not merely so that we may be saved. And that's also, if you want to write down 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we looked at a few times um, over and over again, right? We are, Deuteronomy 4 now, and no, let's look at this verse again. The point of the passage now is this. So keep them and do them, verse 6. Verse 5, these statutes and judgments that I've given you, and that's the Ten Commandments that are going to follow in chapter 5. Keep them and do them. If you do, that's your wisdom and your understanding inside of all the peoples. And what the peoples are going to do, they're going to say, this nation is great for what great verse seven, what great nation is a God as great as, as the Lord, it's God's whenever they call on him or what great nation has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I'm setting before you today. So the law is this righteousness because what the law was designed to do was to, to create a just state where everybody has at least what they need and the nations would know, look how great our God is. And as a result of that, 
the nations will, will be brought into Israel, will be brought into the people of covenant people of God. And if I were to say, what, what's the difference between the New Testament people of God and the Old Testament people of God, I would say, well, the New Testament people of God have been empowered by the Spirit to do it. That's the key difference. Old Testament people of God did their best as much as they could, but we now have been empowered by the Spirit so that our hearts have been transformed so that we can now do it. And secondly, we're then called to now go out to the nations and make him known. Instead of being a nation of people who make God known and bring the nations into us, we are now members of all the nations and we go out to them. So radical distinction then is that we are not a nation of people like the nation of Israel or like America or like India or like any other. The church transcends all nations. That's why I think Christian nationalism, just you can't have it. It doesn't work because we are made up of all the nations and we go out to them. What are you thinking here in terms of this sounds great, but it also sounds impractical. Yes, no. I mean, how do we do this? What does doing this look like? Well, I mean, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I mean, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, I think you can attempt to do it in one interaction with one person at a time mm-hmm. is the way that I I think if if it's okay to dovetail off, it is on an individual basis. Each one of us has a ministry in our own, in our own right. And right. I think most of us know that, but it is truly relational. And, and in relational, it's not just one, two, three, although it can be in the moment of meeting one person, simply praying with them or encouraging them, I believe. But as well, when you build that relationship, getting to the heart of a lot of issues in people's lives is, is a long drawn out oftentimes difficult process Mm. but in relationship if you are truly available and genuine it's amazing how people will open up and then in as best you can meeting them in that moment sometimes you might have to refer them to somebody with with greater wisdom or or experience in dealing with what's really troubling their hearts but as well that kind of starts lending itself communal aspect and in that communal aspect i mean that could be within your neighborhood that could be within your workplace that could be where you find yourself but the struggle that I think I've had in the past is that we're so individualistic that it wants to consume me and that I feel like I have to have this mindset for your better best when I don't. It's just on an individual basis and then on building a small, tight-knit, supportive, encouraging community. I, um, I guess I think of it like an example. If we want to say example and churches can probably relate to this example or anybody in any type of um, community like that is uh, Acts 6, mm-hmm. where um, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, were of need of food, um, mm-hmm. and they were being left behind. And so the churches within themselves or in, in the communities, uh, in that type of community as Christians, as far as... Um, doing, um, I guess, caring and having that relationship, we can care and look to see together how we can um, carry out what God wants for us to do um, and caring for those who are just like those widows. 
So what comes up for me right now is how do how do we actually put this into action given mm-hmm. the situation in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. So yeah, and Russia and you, what the Russians and the Ukrainians and mm-hmm. what can I'm feeling somewhat helpless and somewhat desiring to to want to act, help mm-hmm. the orphaned and the widowed and the poor now and mm-hmm. the starving. And I don't know. I'm trying to figure out where's the best place that I, with what little I have, that I can mm. make the most impact. You know, so that's really, right. that really bothers me right now. Right. my mind yeah. all the time. Right. So that's what's coming up for me, you know, when yeah. we think Christian, there are Christians in Ukraine. You're right. Lots of them. And Russia. And, right. Yeah. And yeah. I, feel, I feel for the Russians that, you know, are either not told don't want this, can't, you know, are putting their lives at risk by standing up and saying, this is not okay. Right. Me, little me, little me in America, <laughs> so far away. Right, right. Anybody else? I mean, I think it's a, a, you know, a bigger question. I mean, I think the Ukraine is, is a situation, you know, it's definitely a sad, you know, it's heartbreaking situation, but I'm kind of in the same vein. It's like, well, what do you what do you do? I mean, do you try to help find a find an organization that's providing support and mm-hmm. and, and fund them? Or, I mean, how do you how do you make the connections? I, I right. don't know, Rob. You seem to make connections all over the place. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, in a, I mean that in a good way. I would just think of an agency that provides aid or support or whatever. I mean, I know they need lots of money. Mm-hmm weapons and you know and fighting and stuff like that um, i mean going over there seems totally out of the out of the right. question i right. what would i what would what would somebody like me even do right open? right yeah and so i guess where i was going with that is that's an instance in the world mm-hmm. i think the world is pretty messed up mm-hmm. and uh, when i see these things i ask myself where is god in all of this mm-hmm. I mean, in a serious way, it's like, you know, why is he letting this, you know, Russia just come in and, you know, trample, you know, these people and kill them and bomb their apartment buildings and hospitals and um, schools and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it bothers me that I don't really see him there. It's absent, you know, it's, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, some of the uh, Old Testament stories about where, you know, God finally gets upset and he comes in and he wipes out the enemy. I'm going, I don't know, wouldn't it be kind of nice if, you know, I'm not even, I'm not even sure. I mean, I guess you have to know who the enemy is, first of all, but kind of think or uh, going, God, I don't know who the enemy is, but couldn't you, mm. couldn't you do something? Just do something, right? And I don't know, it's, it, there's, there's not really an answer. But there are situations like that all over the place. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, you know there's all, sort, all sorts of hot spots. You're saying, um, God, why don't you do something? Maybe he's calling us to do something. Mm-hmm. Somehow he's calling us to be the representative of him in the yep. world. And uh, somehow, I mean, there are great things happening. Like, just like uh, one of my friends, um, she's connected to people in Poland who have a hotel who mm. are t- 
taking in refugees and letting them stay there. And of course, uh, people are donating money to this hotel so mm. that they can stay open and they can still do all the things that they need mm. in order to also open their door. And there's so many places like this that yeah. is there. And giving, yeah, we can give. We If we have the financial means and the freedom to have that financial means, yes, give. Yeah. And help those places who do not have it. Yeah. Anybody else? I think oftentimes you hear the lament about how we as a Christian community in America are real quick to throw money at things. And I want to I want to dissuade that mentality because when I first came to faith as a young man, I had the opportunity to step into a career. I was making really good money, but I just inherently felt from little little of the Bible understood that I needed to look out for those in need. Mm. So I started sponsoring a child. And this is a really long story, but I'll keep it short. But I got a chance to meet that child or meet a second child some 20 years later. Mm. And they made a mistake in that they gave me two children from the same family. So for Christmas and you know their birthdays and, and Easter, mm. I kicked down a little extra. Well, what was unbeknownst to me is that their mom was going out into the community. She was finding the downtrodden. She was finding the alcoholic in the gutter and everybody else. And I just use that as an example, but people <clears> who were really down and out. And she was bringing them to her home. She was clothing them. She was giving them a Bible and she was leading a fellowship. Wow. So when I got to meet this family, wow. yeah, there's 40, 50 people in their Sunday best just clapping and singing and losing their minds. And I'm like, hey, what is going on? Yeah, he just sponsored two kids. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and the little kid goes, Clinton was here a few years ago. He didn't get this big a send off, but they bring me into the hut and they sit me down and they tell me the story. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm, I'm sobbing like a baby yeah. because it yeah. ain't my economy. That's his economy. Yeah, yeah. So in that example, starting with one and letting his economy work the community, that woman, she rocked, but yeah. she impacted lives. I had nothing to do with that apart from just exercising a little bit of faith. So right. if it is support, like other people are mentioning, you can step into that void, man, and just pray on it. He will, yeah. he will work one. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, I would <laughs> add, I think Scott started off with every one of us individually, every day, people we meet, just having this perspective of caring for the other and, and looking for the other with a self-sacrificing uh, love, loving of the other person. And Christianity that I grew up with was very ju- uh, judgmental, believe that our prosperity was a sign of God's faithfulness and of our righteousness. And therefore you kind of look down upon the person who wasn't, who wasn't prosperous. Cause you're like, well, you must not be very righteous, I guess. And, you know, and we, I was just ingrained with, they probably did drugs. They probably did alcohol. They made bad choices. That's why they are where they are. And then you get to find out that's actually not always why people are homeless. So that's not always why people are where they're at is because they made bad choices. That's not always true. Uh, mm-hmm. And even still, Where's the compassion and where's the love uh, in the midst of all that? So fighting through some of those preconceptions that we have of looking down upon the person, oh, look where you're at. Why, why are you that way? And instead of just loving them, when I was pastoring in Bakersfield, a lot of the churches did a lot of good things for the, for the homeless and for the people and great needs there. And I was in a lot of meetings and homeless people are like, you know, I just want people to look at me. Because when you walk out of a store, you try not to make eye contact with them because then you're like, uh-oh, if I make eye contact with that person, I'll have to engage in a conversation. And I don't know. To... And so the homeless person would just, even when people give money to them, they put money in the hat or whatever, they'd walk by and they wouldn't even make eye contact with them. And they just want to be valued as a human being. So just changing some of those stereotypes that we have. And I think that's something that we can all do on, a, on that one-on-one level. 
And then I think, you know, Anthony told the story last week of the church in, I think, New York City or in the Bronx, being that kind of a church where, where you come together as a community and say, hey, let's resource together as a community now and do things together as a community and make a difference within our local community. I think that's something as well. Hmm. My blog coming out tomorrow is like, yeah, you can't trust any, any of the media at all. But I saw maybe day five or day six of the war or whatever trains and trains of people coming out mm. of out of ukraine to the v- various countries that border ukraine on the, on the west coast and south and these people are coming off a train in the germany i believe it was and um, obviously they're immediately they're refugees they have nowhere to go they simply were just escaping ukraine that's all they were doing but all of a sudden the train depot where the people were getting off the train was littered with all these germans holding up signs saying I have room for two people. You can stay as long as you want. Uh, pets are welcome. And just all these, there's hundreds and hundreds of people just receiving these refugees going. And you imagine these refugees thinking, okay, we're about to arrive in Germany. I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow, whether we're going to eat or anything else. And all of a sudden this whole place was full. And I just thought, wow, I hope that's the church there. I hope those are Christians. I don't care who they are. I'm glad that they're, everyone's there, but I hope the Christians are doing that also. And then I think, those of us that are here in America have to stop and go, we do live in the most powerful nation in the world. And it's a democracy. We do have power to speak to our representatives and say, do something, please. Hmm. We demand that you seek diplomacy. We, we demand diplomacy be done. Because if we think, one of the things I mentioned in my blog tomorrow, if we think the United States is innocent in this, we're naive. We're the most powerful nation in the world. Certainly we have our hands in, in Europe too, guys. We just do. And so, and I'm not saying this is not Putin's fault. I mean, he's a really bad dude. Let's be honest with this, right? He's a really bad dude. But why don't we advocate for diplomacy to end this thing? Because everybody that's in the middle of this war are the people that are suffering. The people in Russia that are suffering. And again, the the podcast will come out on Friday with two Russian men. But the reality is the sanctions that we're doing. Well, idea of that is we're doing all these sanctions because we're just going to we're going to squeeze Putin and force him to, set, to force him to stop this war. Well, what we're squeezing is we're squeezing the people of Russia. That's who we're squeezing. And then we're hoping that they get squeezed so hard that they make Putin stop um, because Putin's going to still have he's still going to eat the same meal that he had last night. He's going to have tomorrow night. His meals are not going to change because of our because of our sanctions. And the two and I'll give a little excerpt of the interview that we, we did uh, today that'll come out on Friday, we said, hey, how are, the, how are things happening for you? And it's like, well, the first thing that happened is our money is now worthless. One of, the, one of the guys is actually, we can't say where, but he's in another country. He's on a mission trip. He said, I just left today. I'm on a mission trip. I got to the hotel 10 minutes ago. And he says, but I can't use my, Ameri- my, my MasterCard or Visa anywhere I go because they're not, they're not just closed it off. Any Russian who has a MasterCard or Visa that doesn't work. And so you start realizing, okay, these people are suffering too. And so I think advocacy is something that we also have to think about also. And then, you know, and we got two brothers on the call right now. Marcus has just joined us as well, who are leading ministries in India and they're doing wonderful things. And I, I mean, I, I know Karinakar well, obviously you guys know that, but I've been vetting Marcus out for the last nine, 10 months now and working with him. Marcus oversees a large number of pastors that I, that I work with. And let's find people that we know are doing kingdom work and let's pray for them. Let's support them. Let's encourage them, whatever that might be. So, you know, again, I want to encourage you guys, we're, we're doing it. And, but I, I'm hoping that what we did in this study was bring just create more awareness of going, Hey, this is what it looks like. 
mm. and in a kingdom sense. And it doesn't look like socialism or communism or capitalism. It doesn't look like any of them because they're all fallen, but it looked like the church just being that alternative empire in the midst of empire. So I hope that helps. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.